Well, as you know, we're turning the corner now. We've brought to a close our sermon series called Igniting Worship, where we've looked at all the different elements of our worship service. And uh, I, I think the Lord really worked and spoke through that series. But we're turning in the corner to a new series, and it's called Becoming One. And if you received the grapevine, you saw a little treatment uh, that gives you a preview of what the series is going to be about. It's about marriage and dating and courtship and really, at the bottom of it all, what is at the heart of every successful, thriving human relationship. I think you're going to find that the majority of these lessons are going to pertain mostly to a marriage context, but along the way, you're going to also discover there are some very important principles that never change regardless of which particular relationship you're talking about. And I wish that as that email went out and you sat at your cube and looked at it, I wish I could have gone in your head and seen how you're feeling about that because I know that not everyone feels the same way about the topic of marriage in this room. Is that right? I know that some of you are just fried on the topic. You don't want to think about it anymore. You're so sick of thinking about it. And for you, it's, there's a lot of tension because it's wrapped up with all these memories of things that didn't go the way you wanted. I know for some of you, you are in nirvana. You're in a relationship that's working out well, and you feel like there's nothing wrong with what you've got, and you can't wait to hear a little more teaching to confirm that you are the happiest person on earth. I know for some of you, you're younger, and marriage seems like a billion years in your future, and it seems almost irrelevant to talk about it right now. And maybe some of you, the truth of it is, it's just not part of God's plan for your life, which is totally okay. It's a very valid place to be. But the truth of it is, you're probably going to hear this whole series with your mind already made up about how you feel about the whole subject. And I want to encourage you to put aside those pre-existing conditions and let the Lord just speak to you with a blank slate. Because if you do that, I think what you'll find is you'll be equipped and you'll be spoken, with the, you'll be fed with the truth. And there's a lot of people out there who may turn to you someday for the truth and you will be able to show them that God has an amazing design for the way that people are meant to live with one another. I found that photo online about three years ago, and I had to use it, and I was saving it, and I couldn't resist. This is the perfect sermon to put that little picture. I'm normally not a cutesy kind of guy, but come on, gummy bears kissing is awesome. That's... How many times have you been eating gummy bears? Anyway, the title of the message is, Boy meets girl, or maybe if I had titled another way, Adam meet Eve. I'm going to be looking for the next two sermons I preach, this week and then the, the week after next, at Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. I'd invite you to turn there with me. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. <clears throat> you know, the truth is, right now in America, regardless of your religious affiliation, which is a scary qualifier for this statement, Regardless of your religious affiliation, one out of every two marriages ends in divorce. That's the bottom line truth of the state of marriage in our country. There's something wrong with any culture when half of all promises at the wedding altar fail. And so regardless of what you feel about the topic, it is clear to me that this is a topic I cannot avoid preaching on. It must be spoken about from the pulpits across this country, and not just once in a while, but often. Because these vital relationships are failing at an alarming rate. And I believe it is because at the heart of it, we have chosen as a nation to violate God's design for how he intended a man and a woman to spend their lives joyfully together. 
And so we're going to start unpacking some of that. There's 1,189 chapters in the whole Bible. It's not something I memorized. I had to look it up. Okay? But there's 1,189 chapters in the whole Bible. And only two of them give us a glimpse of what creation was supposed to look like. The other 1,187 chapters are all about how we made a mess of things and God set in motion a loving plan to make it all right again. So in other words, we get two, sh- two chapters, literally one physical sheet of paper that gives us a glimpse of creation and human life as God envisioned it when he was making it all. And all the rest of it is what we already know. It's a mess, right? It's a mess out here. How wonderful then, how, how great it is that in those two chapters that show us the Garden of Eden, paradise, perfection, that wrapped in that account is the story of the first wedding, a marriage story. And what that tells us, at least among other things, is that marriage is not a response of weakness invented by human beings because we are lonely after the fall and decided wouldn't it be cool if we spent the rest of our lives with somebody else. It is not our response to a fallen world. It is God's design for a perfect world. Now, as I say that, don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that it is God's design for every life, but I know this clearly, that marriage between a man and a woman is meant to be the rule rather than the the exception. Do you understand? It is an exceptional thing when a person is legitimately called to a life of singleness that is fruitful and joyful, and I've met a number of those people, and I thank God for them. But I'm here to tell you that we must not dismiss away the institution of marriage As some human invention, a piece of paper, a crutch for the weak, a prison, socially speaking. It is much more than that. It is at the heart of God's design for joy and wholeness in human life. That's what it is. And so I want to look at that that second chapter of Genesis because we get a picture of what it looks like before sin entered the picture. And we'll unpack that over the course of two messages. Let's read the the passage together. I'm going to read out of the English Standard Version. Verse 18 all the way to the end of the chapter. And follow along with me with your eyes. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, I'll tell you, I have studied this passage at length over the course of nearly a decade. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. I have wrestled with this passage over and over. I've taught it in premarital counseling dozens of times. 
And I still see new things emerging out of this rich text again and again when I look at it. And so we're going to unpack it at some great level of detail. Bear with me because I think you're going to find a lot of instruction and encouragement as we walk through this passage together. So instead of some cleverly phrased point, I'm just going to give you key verses or key phrases we find in this passage that we really need to understand more fully. And the first of those is that God makes a very unusual statement. He says, it is not good for the man to be alone. It is not good. Adam was alone and it wasn't good. I had a lot of fun with Photoshop this week. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing because all throughout the creation story, you will recall that after every day of creation, God would make stuff, and then like a good chef, you know, taking that spoon in, and he would say, oh, it is good. He would survey all that he'd done on that given day, and he'd look at it, and if you've ever seen a sunset or looked at the, the heavens and, the, and the, the pictures of space from the Hubble telescope, and you're moved and stirred, God had the same feeling. He saw what he'd made, and he was just impressed with himself. He said, that is good. And so after every single day, he affirmed the goodness. Now understand, sin has not yet entered the picture, so it's not primarily moral goodness we're talking about, but he's saying it's good the way a chef tastes the marinara sauce and says, that's exactly how I pictured it. It is according to the recipe. It is complete. You know, a good chef gets very offended when you reach for the salt before you even taste the food. Because if a chef has made it, it's done. It doesn't need any of your junk. It doesn't need your opinion, your dash of anything. It's finished. And it is good. And that's the heart that God had as he made all of creation. It just happened. So that's what it, he's saying. He's declaring it good. But then all of a sudden, in verse 18, we stumble upon an arresting phrase. For the first time in all of creation, God looks at something and he says to himself, really, that's not good. That's not good. And what is it that triggered this dissatisfaction or sense of incompleteness? It is that he looked at Adam and said, hey, this guy's all alone. And that is not a good thing. See, now, Adam was more alone in that sense than any of us ever will be. Because whether you're married or not, you you may have family, brothers or sisters, mothers and fathers, good friends, a church around you that fills up the fabric of your life. But Adam literally was the only man on earth. Guys, have you ever had a girl say, if you were the only man on earth, I still wouldn't marry you or go out with you. Well, Adam was the only guy on earth. That's as alone as alone gets. But, you know, even as God makes that proclamation, I thought about this. There's still something That doesn't sit well with me. Because in that garden, Adam was alone with God, right? He had all the animals, and he could actually be understood by the animals. It doesn't quite say that, but you get the idea, right? That Adam would go, hey, lion, what's up? And the lion would be like, you know, nothing, just chilling. He had this great fellowship with all creation. Sin hadn't corrupted the human heart yet. It hadn't allowed death and decay to enter the universe. And so everything was in harmony. He's walking around the garden, minding his own business, naked as a jaybird, just going, I am in a garden paradise, naked, not ashamed. And what's even more important, he had this unbroken fellowship with God. In Genesis 3.8, it says that Adam and Eve, after they'd sinned, heard God walking through the garden in the cool of the day. In other words, it was God's custom to be captured in bodily form and walk through the Garden of Eden. 
That's a level of access and intimacy with God that none of us can really understand. Adam was alone in this garden paradise with an undivided, unsinful heart, and he and God were roommates in a paradise. That is something we all dream of as Christians, to one day have an experience with God like that. For us, that's the holy grail of Christianity. And yet, God says to Adam, you are alone. Technically speaking, that's a very strange choice of words, because if God's there, how can Adam be alone? Don't we all say in our pious zeal, God, if it could just be you and me, that's all that I need. That's all that I need. In fact, we have, we're just saying it's more than enough. But we've got to be careful how we say that. Because I'm not entirely sure that's a biblical notion. That God is all that we need. He's the first thing we need. There is nothing else that sustains our lives the way God does. But I want you to hear me clearly on this. If you spiritualize to the extent that you say God is the only thing we human beings need on this earth then you have violated God's own design for the human experience. Why do you think it is that when Jesus was challenged by a teacher of the law, what is the greatest commandment on the heart of God? Why did Jesus not respond with just one answer? Why didn't he just say, hey, it's easy. Just love God because there's nothing else that matters. When he was asked for one answer, he gave two. He would not separate the first and second greatest commandment. Love God with everything you've got, but the second is very much like it. Love other people the way you love yourself. See, I think the the monastic people in the Middle Ages had it all wrong. They thought the height of spiritual fervor was to go away into the desert alone so that you find a sense of Christianized nirvana with just you and God, never mind all these other worm foods walking around me, these fallen, sinful, disturbing, distracting folks. If it could just be me and God, we'd have the perfect picture of Christianity and of human life. And God says, I don't think that's really it at all. We were made for others just as we were made for God. Don't get the hierarchy wrong at all. There's no confusion. Between first and second place, there is a great gap. God is to be our first desire. He is to be the first one we feel lonely for, yearning for. That is the biggest hole we've got in our hearts. As one commentator put it, it's like this. There is a God-sized hole in every heart that no human being can fill. But there is a human-sized hole in our hearts that God seems not willing to fill. In other words, he will not so satisfy us that we are left to say, I don't need anyone else, just God. Now, listen, if you find yourself on a shipwreck and you're deserted on an island and there just is no one else, don't repent. I mean, you can't create people out of thin air. But last time I checked, all of us live in metro Chicagoland, right? Most of us, anyway. There's a lot of people around you. And there is no Christian hiding place for us to say, I do not need other human beings. I see people out of pain or frustration defiantly say, I don't need marriage. In fact, I don't need anyone. I say, well, you might want to consult God on that because that's not how he made you. How can you be God and Adam in the garden and God says to Adam, Dude, you're alone. That's like me saying to Hans, right now you're alone. Mathematically, it makes no sense. But in one sense, Adam was profoundly alone. He had God, but he had none other who was like him. All the other beasts of the field had a mate, a match. Adam alone was singular in creation. And that was not according to God's plan. 
for humanity. Now, why am I saying all this? Because I find that sometimes people in an effort to become more Christian or more spiritual try to spiritualize away this deep, empty feeling we feel in our hearts. Say, you know what? Lord, I'm so sorry that though I should only want you, I'm lonely for a man or a woman. As if somehow that's a problem that we got to cure ourselves of. As if somehow that's a sign of spiritual weakness or compromise or divided heart. And very well it might be. It might be. So you want to check yourself on that. But you know what? Here's the thing. Adam was minding his own business and it was, he was happy as could be. And it was God who dunk, knocked him over the head and said, guess what, dude? You're alone and it's not good. And Adam's like, I was real happy till just now, but come to think of it, I am alone and it's not good. It wasn't Adam's idea. He wasn't walking around going, lion, you're just not doing it for me. Tiger, nah, horse, uh-uh. Adam wasn't on a quest. He was satisfied, and God informed him that still something was not perfect. And so God took care of it, didn't he? And this is important, and this is a a teaching that I found so much resistance to because we've been trained in the church that God is everything. Yes, he is. But he is not the only thing. Jesus also taught, seek not only the kingdom of God, but seek first the kingdom of God. We are not on this earth alone. He has made us to primarily express a lot of that vertical relationship in a horizontal context. I want to make sure that you never think you're supposed to get rid of this need we have for fellow human beings. And if pain or pride or prejudice or any other thing has caused that part of you to be seared closed, it needs to be reopened by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no one who in honesty can really say, I don't need other people. You can say in honesty, I'm afraid of other people. I'm not willing to open my heart to other people. I'm afraid to trust and risk and hope again. But you cannot in honesty say to God, I don't need anyone else. Because God has not made you that way at all. And there's healing and a remedy for that kind of pain and pride and prejudice that leaves us feeling that way. That emptiness, that hollowness, God put it there. It's a hole he designed in all of us to draw us to one another as we're drawn closer to God. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. There's an order to things in life. Seek God first. You dare not pursue a relationship if you don't know where you stand with your God. But as that relationship is growing, do not fight that yearning in your heart for the deep, close companionship with your fellow human beings. Especially, don't fight that need that God has deposited for a mate. Are you with me so far? Some of you will take a week and a half, a dozen emails. We'll get there. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not unwilling to have a dialogue with you about this because this is not an easy teaching for a lot of people. And maybe I need to clarify myself along the way. Stay with me. Let's move to the next thing. So God looks at it and says, you know, Adam, you're alone in some real sense. And we've got to do something about it. But then the very next assignment God gives to Adam is so curious. He says to Adam, hey, here's a thought. I'm going to march before you every single creature I've made. And I want you to peer deeply into its nature and essence and then assign it a name. Now, you've got to understand the way Hebrew worked, every word, every name had a meaning. And it used to be like that in old Asian culture. So, you know, um, 
people would, would ask me, what's my name in Korean? And I would say, Hanbyeol. And the very next question from a Westerner was always, what does your name mean? And of course I knew, because Asian names have meanings. But then if someone were to ask me now, hey, what is your name? Dave, what does it mean? I am full of Daveness. I don't know what Dave means. Dave is just a title I give myself. It's a label like a file name. It doesn't mean anything to me. It's just the way that I avoid confusion when you go, hey, Hans, I don't turn around. Okay? That's all a name is to us. But in that culture, a name spoke into reality the essence of a very thing. Right? I might not call that a gummy bear. I might call it a sweet, chewy confection. I don't know. But I would look at it, I would capture its essence, and then I would name it, and so would it be. Now, what do you think that's about? That God is having all these different creatures paraded in front of Adam, and he's staring at them. It's God's way of experientially affirming in Adam the truth of what he's just proclaimed. It's God's way of saying, look, I just told you you're alone. Now I need you to know that it's true. I need you to know that this lack of of completeness to the picture is real. And you're not going to know that till you gaze deeply at each one of these creatures and realize it is not your match. And so he does that. And if you flip to the next slide, that's the very next thing. And no suitable helper was found for him. They got the chewiness part right, okay? But what would you have if you crossed a gumdrop and a gummy bear? I'm not sure. A gummy drop? (laughs) Chuckle, there, there you go. The point is that after looking at all of the things that God had made, Adam said, you know, yeah, they're okay. I kind of like the way the dog fetches stuff and the horse is good for riding, you know. But at the end of the day, none of these things could be called a helper. Now, let's unpack that word helper a little bit. In, in our modern Western American sensibilities, that whole word helper, that, the very concept is a little annoying to women, I'm finding. What do you mean, I'm your helper? You should be my helper, too. And yes, we get that. We are a liberated culture, and I'm not going to violate the, the freedoms that we have here. But listen to me carefully. You have to understand what it means. What God is communicating when he says to Adam, what I'm about to make for you is a helper. Here's the first thing that we need to learn from that word. Nobody needs help doing nothing. You get me? Nobody needs help doing nothing. When's the last time you were vegging around on your couch and said, you know, it's hard to be a couch potato. I need someone to do half my sleeping for me. Of course not. People doing nothing could do it just fine all by themselves. But you know when you need help? When you're actually doing something. When you've actually got a purpose in life. Do you know what Adam's assignment was? What his great work was? Listen to what Genesis 1.28 says. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Sort of hard to do alone. Be fruitful and increase in number. If you didn't get what I just said, ask your neighbor later on. Fill the earth... And subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then later in Genesis 2.15, he says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to what? To work it and to take care of it. In other words, Adam wasn't meant to be walking around naked in this garden, just enjoying himself existentially. 
It's amazing that in a world without death and corruption where stuff isn't supposed to go wrong, there's still work to be done. Work is not a curse. It is not a punishment. I know tomorrow morning you're going to disagree with me as you're driving to work, but I'm telling you, work is not a punishment. It is at the heart of what it means to be human, and it is a gift from God. God gives us work not only to make money, but to be alive. That's the reason we work. And God, God understands that when we embrace our work, we find a structure, a purpose for our lives as well. That's why it's important that you not just find the job that makes you the most money or gives you the most prestige, but it's got to be work that's worthy of the majority of the waking hours of your earthly existence. If you cannot be passionate about it, you need to ask God for a way to move on to something that you can do with a sense of purpose and meaning in your life. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Work was Adam's purpose. And because he had something to do, he required help to do it. But let me ask you, what is the nature of the help that Adam required? Was it primarily about competence? Adam, apparently, his main job was farmer slash uh, rancher or something like that. He was supposed to care for the animals and care for... So, you know, probably had to ride on more and he's just mowing the lawn and cutting all the shrubs and everything. This was what his job was. If that's the case, I think maybe a goat would have been a better mate because goats eat grass all the time. They keep the lawn nice and trim. Maybe he had to carry a lot of heavy stuff, you know, maybe buckets of water, and an ox would have been a much better wife because an ox can carry lots of water. Last time I checked, Jeannie can't carry more stuff than me. As a pack animal, she's not very helpful. That dog sure does fetch without questioning. It doesn't go, you get it this time. A dog, every time you throw the stick, (laughs) he'll go get it because it's his nature. He doesn't argue with you. Unfair. How come you get to do all the throwing and I do all the fetching? That's kind of a nice thing for a guy. Hey, get it. And he gets it every time. You get the picture, right? If you have to climb up and trim the high branches, a koala is a much better helper. There are so many better partners. If competence to do the work of the garden is the only help Adam needed then we might say in male chauvinistic pride, what really could Eve do that Adam could do at the end of the day? That's not the nature of the help which God was referring to. It wasn't that Adam was incompetent to do the work, but he was incomplete to sustain the work. What we're getting at is Adam needed a kind of help that was more than an extra set of hands. He needed his heart to be full so he could last through the journey with vision and with passion. You know, Jeannie is a big part of sustaining my ministry, not because she does research for my sermons or does a fourth of the Bible study. In fact, at that level, she contributes almost nothing to my actual ministry. Okay? But you know how she sustains it? She makes me want to live. She reminds me on a regular basis of the joy of being on this planet. If she was gone, I can tell you, I wouldn't be that afraid of leaving, of dying, of living without purpose. She helps me so much want to be here and show up every morning. Watching her raise four kids without complaining makes me want to shepherd 200 people without complaining. She makes me remember that on this very earth, there is someone and something that has touched me the way God would long to do were he here in the flesh. That strengthens me. It is the reason I haven't left the ministry. It's the reason I get up in the morning and I bounce out of bed instead of slink out onto the floor. This is the, at the heart of it. 
the nature of the help we all need. It is a hard thing to stay motivated in anything when you are living in isolation. It's a very hard thing. And marriage is one of the first contexts that God has provided for that. But there are others. There is the church. There are our friends and our neighbors and our families. And if you live in disconnection from all of those people, you'll find it very difficult to live joyfully and with endurance this purpose you have in life. Here's why the two things are so important to be linked together. Because I've watched people who attempt to live life without purpose and they end up trying to structure for themselves an existence like they imagined Adam might have had. Let's just create a paradise for ourselves on this earth as if the goal of human life was to exist and be comfortable. It is what I call the modern American existential coma. It's as if we think the only reason we're here is to be here and at that, let's try to do it as comfortably as possible. Isn't it strange then that in America, the people who are most committed to trying to be happy usually end up being the least happy people you know? Because God has not created us to live only for happiness and comfort. I know that's what we're tempted to create for ourselves, but I've watched this destroy marriage after marriage. There are so many people struggling in their relationships, especially in marriage, because they've somehow just been lulled into sleep in this existential coma. Marriage has a way of numbing all your former ambition and passion for God, doesn't it? It's like one day you're thinking, I'm going to go and do something about AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa. And then you get married and you go, let's just redo the living room instead. You know, one, one day you're leading six small groups in the church. The next day you're like, let's just stay home and watch reruns of Seinfeld and eat dinner. It does something to a person. It makes somebody very inward, very coziness-oriented. Very comfort-driven. It makes us forget that one of the greatest joys in life and the greatest motivators for a relationship is to have something we both believe in that we can do together. That creates the kind of passion that lasts. But when a couple only lives together as partners in comfort and pleasure, after all, it gets stale. I've seen it happen. Where where a couple, instead of living for something, just live basically for the next small incremental ratcheting up of stimuli. Just live for the next remodeling project, the next big movie we're looking forward to watching, the next vacation, the next social outing. Unless there's something on the horizon to look forward to, there's this deadness inside and they panic because that would mean we'd have to just sit here and look at each other and actually be a couple. And I can't handle that. So instead of living together, let's just do together. Let's be busy about little things, getting excited about just getting more and more comfortable Forget the purpose in life. That's why after a while, though we're meant to be helpers to one another, the helping component is removed from marriage and we're just roommates. We're just in the same car. We're just passengers on the same bus. And that's why after a while, why are we together again? Because frankly, I could be a little more happy and a little more comfortable without you. How many men have said that when they're frustrated in marriage? Man, if I could just eject you, even for a year... I could sleep in and no one would bother me. I could eat whatever I want and no one would judge me. I could watch what I want on TV and I would not have you go, I don't understand, man. You could do whatever you want. If all you care about is comfort and pleasure, I guarantee you living alone is a better strategy. You don't have to share anything with anyone. You don't have to have anyone infringe upon your territory, mess around with your stuff, rearrange your things. What is it that God brings a man and a woman together for in the first place? 
It is not just to be in a coma next to each other on a bed. It is to live for something. And I want to give that to you because I love you. As the strongest possible exhortation, if you are in a relationship and all you care about is being happy, if what you think as a man is that your whole duty is to make this woman's life as comfortable and happy as possible, she will grow bored of you and of this very quickly. She will need more and more and more to feel alive because she doesn't have a life. Existing is not living. Just being here is not the same as really being here. Do you know what I mean? Again, I made a lot of emails this week. You might need a little bit of time to take that all in. But the kind of help that we really need is the kind of help that comes from somebody who has received the same charge from God and is committed to the same things so that we'll do it together. And believe me, in between, there's a lot of pleasure and a lot of comfort and a lot of happiness to be found along the way. You know why vacation's so good? Because there's work. What if I told you to play for 365 days? You would die inside, I guarantee you. Some of you guys are like, try me. I guarantee you. You long for something to do. Let me give the last point here, and then we'll pick up the rest of the passage next time. And so God has pointed out a deficiency in the system or an incompleteness. And he says, Adam, you are alone. It is not good. And we looked at all these other animals, and they're just not cutting it. So what does God say next? Does he say, listen, Adam, I'm sorry. Maybe if you put a wig on the chimpanzee and blur your eyes, you know, use your imagination. It might be good enough. We share 99% of the DNA, I've been told. Is that God's response? Or does he go, man, I'm so sorry. We tried, kiddo, but there's nothing out there for you. See ya. Is that God's verdict? No. Look what God does. It's God who presents to Adam the mate that he needed. <laughs> I photographed my own hand last night because I couldn't find a... <laughs> so I'm sorry, I'm not saying I have the hand of God. It's just, there's the picture. You know what I see going on in the world? I love people watching. I, I'm an amateur anthropologist. I feel, like, I feel like Margaret Mead, is that her name? The one who studied the gorillas? What's her name? The woman, the gorilla woman. Jane Goodall. Jane Goodall, Margaret Mead. She, she's out there watching, and this is what I do when I'm at the mall. I sit there, you know, sometimes holding Jeannie's stuff, and I just watch people. And you know who I love watching the most? I love watching gaggles of teenagers hanging out. They're fun to watch because they're not there to shop. They got no money. They're just there to be there. And so they got to find some other reason to be there. And it's fascinating watching teenagers. It's fascinating, not because I judge them, because I remember that I was exactly like that once, not too long ago. And when I watch them, it is like watching a Discovery Channel documentary on mating rituals. You know, you watch the Discovery Channel, and you see the male bird puffs out his shells, like that, right? Or the, the rams are like, they, they ram against each other 40 miles an hour, almost knock themselves out. They look and make sure all the chicks are watching. You know? Hey, did you see that? The other dude's on the ground. I'm, I'm fine. Right? Why are they doing that? It's all posturing and puffing up. It is all done in, in a, an effort to say, look at me. I'm a better catch. You go with me. You won't be sorry. And we'll have healthy offspring together. 
This is what I see happening all the time among teenagers. They are trying way too hard. It's all about posturing. It's about being other than who they really are. All this, the talk, they talk like, not like themselves. They act not like themselves. Everything is done with an audience in mind, hoping to draw attention. And you know what the sad thing is, about, is in America? We don't always outgrow that, do we? We just up the stakes a little bit. Now it's not just wearing a tight t-shirt because I've been working out. You know what I'm talking about. How come the guys who are most fit always wear the tightest shirts? And guys like me, we wear baggy sweatshirts to cover the big one-pack that we have. I like to tell Jeannie, my big muscle is my ab. My ab. One. One big square. You know, we do that a lot, don't we? At our age now, it's about being the funniest or, you know, speaking the street language, which I can hardly understand. It's like another language. I listen to these kids and I have no idea what that guy just said to that girl. But it made sense to her because she's blushing. Now it's about having a nice car. It's about having a nice house. It's about having a good job title on your business card. It's about this and it's about that. And it's about the ability to go away on amazing vacations and drop names, you know. Uh, by the way, I was having uh, dinner last night with the anchor from CBS News, you know, just good friends and blah, blah, blah. And we do this all the time. We're dropping things about, oh, just the other day I was at this event and I sat at the table with the governor. And we're always doing that, aren't we? Because we never quite outgrow the need to look impressive to other people. We never really outgrow the need to try very hard to attract the admiration and attention of others, especially the opposite gender. There's a reason why we primp and we prep ourselves before coming to church. God's not judging how you dress. What do I have to ask you, do I look dorky when I wear this or do I look fine? And she usually goes, you look fine. But once in a while she goes, "Uh uh-uh, no. Are you stupid? And so I change. Why? Because we realize that we have other people looking at us. It's important. But here's the thing that God does. Here's his message to Adam. Adam, you need a mate. But then he doesn't say to Adam, go out there and find one. Prance around in front of the animals and see which one takes notice. But instead, God says, listen, I'm going to take over the story now. I'm the one who spotted the problem. Watch, who is the subject of every sentence in this whole account? It is God. God says, I will make a helper fit for him. He doesn't tell him to go out and get one for himself. He says, I will make one fit for him. That says a couple things. First, God is the one who does the heavy lifting here. And second, God knows what you need even more than you know what you want. Do you understand that? Don't always trust your instincts because the truth is American culture has made us all very superficial, I think. You know what passes for beauty these days in America? Only the physical. There is no other definition of beauty anymore except what's physical. What do you mean now when you say he was a beautiful man and she was a beautiful woman? We immediately think only of looks, but there are so many other layers of beauty. Do not trust your instincts and think you know best what you need because probably all you know is what you want and what you want has been told to you by and large by the world you live in. But God knows who will help you make the distance. I can guarantee you when Jeannie first met me, I was not the guy in campus she thought she would marry. Can I get an amen, honey? You know, you know I'm speaking the truth. In fact, 
First time I asked her out on a date, she said, this is weird because you're like one of the old guys on campus. And like we're of another generation. I represented the old school and she was very much of the new, the new wave coming in. And the truth is, if it had just been up to us, we might not have picked each other. But God knew what we needed. He knew what I needed more than anyone else. He provided very well. This is the way God works. And I want to issue that challenge to you because some of you may find yourselves in that place of trying way too hard, being so conscious of the external things, how you look on the outside. Am I impressive yet? And you're frustrated because the more money you make, the nicer a car you buy, nobody's paying attention to you. You're like, what's wrong? Why can't I get somebody? I've been on the treadmill like I'm a slave. And how come I can't get anyone? Because primarily speaking, it is not up to you to get anything. God is doing the hard work of forming someone fit for you. Your act is mainly responsive, not aggressive, proactive. Do you understand that? God is making someone. And I know some of you are about to lose faith and say, I don't think that's true for me. But hang on. Here's the interesting thing. As God is making Eve, what's Adam doing? Do you think he he said to Adam, hey, come here to the drafting table. Give me your input. Let's have a brainstorming session. What do you want? No, you know what he does? He goes, dunk. Why don't you just be unconscious for like a couple hours? Your input is irrelevant. You don't even have a role to play. I'm going to do, he's like, daddy's going to take care of it. You just go to sleep there and I just need this. And he yanks out a rib. And he goes to work. Adam's only contribution is getting a rib yanked out of his chest. And even that was without permission. You see that? I think about the fact that if I put on my player hat, I prowled her like a lion in the tundra. And just when she wasn't looking, I pounced on her. And I beat her. I beat all the other guys to the punch. And I was as smooth as I was like, come on, you know you, you, know you want me. And I won her heart. I got the girl. I could give myself all kinds of credit, but the truth is, what did I have to do with the fact that I'm living in Illinois and going to the U of I? I, I had very little to do with all those things. If it were off to both of us, neither one of us would have been at U of I. She would have been at UFC. I would have been at Cornell. We would have never met each other. So many pressures and forces outside of our control brought us to a place in life that narrowed the field and limited a number of options. And there she was. God had already done the work of preparing this woman for me. What I did was respond and receive what God provided. Do you understand it's a matter of perspective? We think that we're out there, we're supposed to be hunting and getting and all that. But the primary thing is you have to recognize God is taking care of it. He is providing. Even when you're asleep, even when you're unaware, the other person is being cultivated for you. As Adam emerges from general anesthesia, what do you suppose is the first thing he sees? He sees Eve in all her glory. The fig leaves are still on the fig trees, okay? The next time I preach, we're going to pick up from there and look at the response that Adam makes and further understand this design that God has for the way it's supposed to work between a man and a woman. Listen, here's the take-homes from today. It is not good for us to be alone. That may find its primary expression in most of your lives through marriage, but not necessarily. But I'm going to give you this challenge one last time. It is not good for us to be alone. 
I know there's a lot of reasons why you may have built your life that way, to protect yourself, to make things easier, but it is not God's design for anyone. We are made for community, just as we're made for communion with Him. Remember that. And don't try to talk yourself out of that yearning that you have in your heart for the deep fellowship of your fellow man. Second thing I want you to take home with you is this. If you don't have a purpose in life, you don't need a helper in life. Men, stop trying to get a girl when you have no idea where you're planning to take her. You're like, come on and join this journey. I have no clue where I'm going. Would you ever get in a car with someone and go, where are we going? I don't know. I just felt like driving. What a waste of time. Do you have any clue why you're here? Is every description of your life and the promise of the future just existential? Here's what we will do to exist. Or do you speak of your life in the language of purpose and meaning and passion? Can you really say to the world, I am here to crunch numbers for such and such a corporation, and then I shall one day breathe my last, and all the books shall be balanced. Amen. Wow. If that's all you see in your life, not the best sales pitch. Come and exist with me as I account our way into oblivion. You know what's really attractive? It's somebody who knows what they're doing. Someone who knows why they're showing up. Someone who says to you, get in. We're going somewhere. I'd like to staple you to my life, and let's do it together. That's hot. That's better than pecs. last thing I want to say to you, don't try so hard. At some point in your life, God will give you the signal you will have to appropriate his provision to yourself. You'll have to receive actively what he's made for you. But don't think that the purpose of marriage is to go out there and get someone through all your posturing, all the padding of your personal resume, all the appearances that you know are not really there. Missed, you know, some, some spray bottle on your face before you walk and go, I just came from the gym, you know. Don't do stuff like that. Don't do push-ups before you walk to a place where your muscles are bigger. Just be who you are. Truth is, if they don't like what they have, you're going to be putting on an act for the rest of your life. It's exhausting. Be you. Let God find the person who's supposed to be with you. And when that moment comes, you'll know, and there'll be a role to play. I don't advocate a passive, God, give me, I'm just going to sit around here. There is a part to play, and I will unpack that more next time. Here's what I'm trying to say to you. Don't be like the teenagers in the shopping mall, strutting your stuff, trying to be impressive. Just be who God made you. It's enough. Most of us who love you, we love the real you. We're grossed out by the fake you. We roll our eyes behind your back. (laughs) When you're trying to be that other you, the alter ego. And we're like, why don't you just be you because you're pretty cool. And we can handle that. Why don't we just bow for a moment together? This is not one of those messages with six or seven tidy practical applications. But my intention hopefully today was to be used by God to change your thinking. Because I'll tell you, our thinking needs to be changed in this vital topic. And when your thinking changes, 
your behavior changes. This is not a church where we'll ever say to you, the only thing you need is God. We don't need each other. No, you need God first, but we definitely need one another. And I'm not afraid to say it in that language. We need each other. In the most profound way, God has made us for our fellow human beings. And marriage is one of the sweetest, most joyful provisions for that need that we have. And I believe for most of you in this room, you will find that it is part of God's plan for your life. Let's turn our trust over to Him. It is not good for us to be alone. Let's stop trying to build a life where we feel satisfied being alone. Cry out to your God and say, fill my life with you and with others. Also asking you, especially those of you who are already married, please do not slip into the existential coma of the American nightmare that says, that you can just mark the time in comfort, and that's the same as living. It is not. Live for something and do it together. That's life. That's why you need a helper fit for you. Those who are still waiting, can I tell you, that it's not your burden to make a mate for yourself. God is providing and has already provided. He has set the wheels in motion. You need to have faith. And faith is meaningful only when you feel like dropping it and losing it. That's when faith really kicks in. Don't give up. Because I know this. Your God will not give up on you. Your day is coming. And this God can be trusted. Day for action comes, you will know. Wherever you may find yourself this morning, I'm going to give you a minute of quiet now and invite you just to pray a response to the Lord about these topics. Then we'll sing a song together.